Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hello, and welcome back to Ayers on the Road. We are so excited to be with you, and man, have we been on the <laughs> road this week. Yeah, the funny thing is the, the <laughs> 13 years ago when we started this podcast, Ayers on the Road just meant we were traveling a lot for speaking and book tours and so on, so you never knew where we were going to broadcast from. But it wasn't really on the road. It was always on airplanes. But But this week, we have been... We used to like road trips, but we kind of decided <laughs> we you were too old decided. for them. I, I, don't, I love road trips. I think they're so fun. But anyway. We've been on one. We we drove down to St. George in southern Utah, and then we drove down to Flagstaff, Arizona, where we're in a castle. We're in this castle that we found <laughs> online. I mean, it really is kind of a rock castle, and the reason we're here is because Queen Linda is having yeah. a birthday, and we thought we'd better celebrate it in a castle. Even though at this point, you kind of just want to forget about your birthday. <laughs> I remember my dad, when I was a kid, getting so excited when his birthday was coming on October 4th, and he was like, Linda, don't even talk about it. I don't want to think about my birthday. Just forget my birthday. And I thought, You're like, How could the, you not the day of the year. Yeah, right. Just get excited. We're going to party. But now I understand him totally. So we've got some kids from Utah and Arizona are going to join us, and we're going to have a big birthday bash for Queen Linda. <laughs> Stop that. Okay. I would, I would rather just go to sleep and not think of it. But so it having, would be delightful to see everyone. So I'm going to cut you up on our personal <laughs> gossip. We're now going to jump into this podcast today because we got a lot to cover. Those of you who listened last week um, know that we're doing a little mini-series on the three deceivers, the three things we think rob us happiness. And we introduced that last week. If you have time and you didn't listen last week, you may want to go back and listen to that because it introduces these three deceivers of control ownership and independence but if you didn't hear it you still can totally understand yeah. what we're saying i mean you you can go back and do it but it really is uh they stand they're standing alone three yeah you're right linda three deceivers control ownership and independence maybe we can give you just a little review of that real quickly and then today we're going to jump into the first deceiver and tell you what we think it can be replaced with okay now you went by those three a little bit fast again and they didn't hear last week which they probably didn't that's that's why we're going to give them a little kind of a review okay here, here we go the frustration, stress, and imbalance we so often feel are not based as much on what we do or what happens to us as they are on the fact that we are seeking the wrong things, that we have the wrong goals. That is a bold statement, and most people are quite determined to defend the things they are seeking and the goals they have chosen to pursue. Nevertheless, it is a fact that most of us spend a substantial amount of time and mental effort going after three things that actually end up working against us and against our joy and well-being. They are goals that we have been programmed to think are good things, right things, and things that bring us happiness. Yet, it is our entanglement with these three pursuits of control, ownership, and independence 
that destroys the balance and the quality of our lives. So we're we're just reading a little out of this book that I personally love. In fact, a guy asked me the other day, Linda, I didn't tell you this, but he said, you've written so many books. I don't read very much. I'm only going to read one. Which one should I read? <laughs> I said, well, first of all, you should read more books. No. <laughs> I said, well, if you're really only going to read one, read The Happiness Paradox, because I think it's, it sort of represents a lifetime of thinking about joy, which has always been our favorite word. And Well, thinking about how to live a joyful life. Yeah in the midst of a really messy world. And and the conclusion, and we're going to, that's why we're doing this little mini series on it. We really want to intrigue you by the fact that the that's the paradox. The paradox is the three things we, we think as a society will bring us happiness. The three things that we pursue, the three things, I hate to use the word, but we almost worship them as a Western society. We want more control. We want more independence. We want more ownership. And those three things really don't exist. And pursuing them, we think, leads to a lot of unhappiness. So we're going to try to spend this whole podcast talking about the first one, about the, the fallacy of control, and most importantly, about an attitude that we think can replace the idea of control. Again, think how little we really control. We can try to control ourselves, but other than that, we just don't have very much control over anything. So um, we're going to read you a little more, and then we're going to get right into that. And hopefully, it'll be something that will really be meaningful to you. Um. These three thieves, talking now about control, ownership, and independence, they not only take joy from us, but they do deceive us. That's why we call them in this book the three deceivers, because we've been tricked into assuming that we want them, into assuming that they are good for that for us. They have grown into obsessions. They are called the three joy thieves because that's exactly what they do. There are two big problems with the concepts of control, ownership, and independence. One is that they cause stress, frustration, and unhappiness. The other is that they represent false values and are, in fact, false and impossible concepts. They're actually illusions. They really don't exist. Think about that. What do you really control? You're one tiny individual in a world full of forces and circumstances that operate completely apart from your will. What do you really own? With the one possible exception of your agency or a power of choice, you own nothing. You're a user of things that pass through your hands. Finally, from what are you really independent? You're interdependent with so many other people, especially those you love, and completely dependent on God, nature, or whatever higher power you perceive, for the very air you breathe, for the very light that lets you live. So that's a quick review of what we talked about last time, that these are the three deceivers. Now, today, 
we're going to focus on the first one, on the deception of control. And we're going to give you in the second half of the show what we believe is the antidote or an alternative attitude that we can literally consciously adopt into our lives that can get rid of this deceiver of control and give us a connection to the real control that exists with God and with his world. But isn't that the thing that we always think we need is control? I mean, your kids are out of control. You think I've got to get control of my life. I've got to get in control of these kids. I have got to think how I can control myself, uh, my thoughts, the things that are um, pulling me down. I, I need to control it. So that, I mean, we do need to control those things. But we have to understand that we are so limited in the control we have. Let us give you just kind of a this is a, an attempt to sort of be a history of the concept of control. And that'll lead us to the point where we can give you what we think is the alternative. Um, here we go. The history, the quest of control is essentially the history of the world. True. On the macro level, wars are fought, boundaries drawn, and laws written in pursuit of control. But on the micro, we try to control everything from the temperature of our rooms, to the behavior of our kids. Human beings seem hardwired with the desire to control the things around them. We want to act rather than be acted upon. This internal programming has probably saved our lives individually and collectively. And it motivates a lot of goals and plans and actions. But it is so often going too far. So so think about that with us. In recent history, this instinct to control has basically been institutionalized by a whole industry of time management and goal setting and by the notion that control is what brings us happiness. The good notion of setting goals and making plans and controlling oneself, all of that's good, honey, right? Right. But it gets expanded into the false idea that we should be able to control and manage everything and everyone around us. Yet in reality, we have control of a tiny island of things around which swirls a, a huge sea of uncontrollability and unpredictability. Our challenge is not to control the ocean, but to see its beauty and appreciate and learn how to best ride on its waves and on its currents. I think probably one of the main things is when we think of what your life is right now, there's always some things that are disrupting, right? that are um, upsetting. And we are searching for a way to control what's going on. And instead of accepting what comes and, and learning how to interpret it in the best possible way. Right. But I think there is a certain amount of control that's needed when life's out of control, right? Right. But in the control mode, surprises annoy or irritate us. So true. Because they prevent our days from going exactly as we had planned. (laughs) You've ever had a day that's gone exactly as you planned? (laughs) Our friends annoy us because they don't do things the way we would. Our children annoy us because they don't seem to want to do exactly what we want them to be or do. 
and are interested in just what we think they should be interested in. in. And days when we don't get everything checked off our list get chalked up as failures because we define success as control. So, so the bottom line is that striving to control our emotions, our appetites, and our habits is good. However, we must strive with equal diligence to acknowledge that we're fragile and vulnerable, and we need help in everything we do, even in our most personal improvement goals. When our instinct and desire to control goes unchecked, we edge toward the definition of a control freak. And the result is the irritation of others and the frustration of ourselves. Bottom line, there must be a better and more accurate attitude to have than the attitude of control. I think what we're one way to look at this, Linda, we we try to teach our children to control themselves. We try to teach them, look, you can control your mood, you can control how you treat other people, you can control you know, what you complain about and so on. We're trying to teach them self-control. But at some point in the growth process and in becoming mature adults, we need to acknowledge how much we don't control. And when we when we do that, it opens up a new path to happiness and a new kind of attitude, which we have a name for and which we're going to reveal <laughs> in, the, in second. the second half of the show. So do you think we've do you think we've beat up the idea of control enough? <laughs> I think you get the idea. Um there are some things you do have to control. You have to control your car while you're driving, right? There are some things that are in front of you that you that need to be controlled, but there are so many things that we can control and making our lives um in turmoil because we can't control is the problem. So again, we're going to take a brief break, but just just to summarize what we've done, um, we think the three deceivers of control, ownership, and independence are basically lies, and we think they disrupt and undermine happiness. And in this little mini-series, today we're focused on the first one of those, control, and we want to suggest an alternative attitude that acknowledges how little control we have and actually is grateful that a greater force and a greater intelligence is in control and not us. Right. We will be back in just a moment. Hang on. We got some fun things to talk about. Welcome back to Ayers on the Road. Here's Richard and Linda Iyer. And we're back. Um, we uh, have thought about a lot of things ourselves and thinking about this that we haven't thought of for a while. You do have to keep centering yourself on uncontrol, realizing that, yes, there is need for some control, but that really, in the, in the end, we don't have any control. Absolutely. So here we get the drum roll and the alternative to control is serendipity. You guessed that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, for sure. Before you tune out, that is a word that's been 
messed up and misdefined and oversimplified for a long time. A lot of people, even movies, a movie named Serendipity that was really about fate and about luck. And those are not the things that serendipity is. So we're going to read you, we're going to convince you in the next 13 minutes <laughs> that serendipity is a fabulous thing to pursue. Wait a minute. Before we start on this, I have to say that that my husband, Richard, has been absolutely uh, overcome with this word since day one, since the day I met him. Oh, okay, he okay. loves the oh, word okay. serendipity, and you'll see why. Well, we almost named our first daughter serendipity. Okay. Yeah. All right, let's go. Here we go. This marvelous word has adopted and oversimplified recent, been adopted and oversimplified recently by popular culture, becoming the name of ice cream stores, boutiques, movies, and clothing lines. In its new popularity, serendipity is often defined as fate or luck or something good that happens to you purely by chance. Its true definition, though, is much more interesting and illuminating. The word was coined by a 19th century English author named Horace Walpole, who loved an ancient Persian fable called the Three Princes of Serendip. Serendip was the early name of the beautiful teardrop-shaped island off the southern tip of India that the British called Ceylon and that we call today Sri Lanka. In the fable, each of these three princes sets out in a search of his fortune. None of them actually find a fortune, but all of them, through their extraordinary awareness and perception, find things that are better than a fortune. They discover love, truth, and opportunities to serve. They're able to unearth these treasures because they notice things that other people miss and thus realize unexpected joys and discoveries. So Walpole, reading the fable, said to himself, we do not have an English word that expresses that happy ability not to control things, but to find things that are better than what we think we're seeking. So he coined the word serendipity, and here's his exact definition. This is the word, this is the definition that Horace Walpole gave to the word he had created. A state of mind whereby a person, by good fortune and through awareness and sensitivity, frequently finds something better than that which he is seeking. Now, let that sink into you for a minute or two. I mean, that is quite remarkable. What he's saying is, if we can become aware enough, not only through our five senses, but through our spiritual awareness, if we can realize how small and insignificant we are, but how great the forces are that operate around us. And if we can tune into those forces, we can still have our goals and still have our plans and still try to make things go the way we want, but we can turn loose of this idea that we can control things and start watching for things that come to us, not through our own pursuit, but through the way the universe works. And we have kind of tried to expand Walpole's definition just a little bit to make it more complete and more spiritual. So here's his definition, but augmented by some of our words. Serendipity 
is a state of mind and spirit wherein we strive for awareness of divine blessings, purpose, and will. As we go about our lives and seek our goals, we try to notice all that is around us and inside us. Happy for adventure and spontaneity of life and willing to detour or depart from our plans each time we become aware of something better. Now, I know that's a, it's a lot to take in, but we really believe that this word can represent an attitude that makes us both humble and grateful for the fact that we're God's children and that we're part of his design and his world, which makes it a little better to live in than if we think we're in control. So we're going to read you just a short poem that tries to express that and hopefully will seep into your consciousness and maybe make you love this word as much as we do. It's called The Promise. This is the serendipity's impact. What's needed is an attitude, an attitude that can change the way we see life and the way we live life. It's an attitude that involves new awareness, new approaches, and a fresh answer to the deepest and oldest personal questions of how spiritual guidance is obtained. We ask, how do we avail, our, avail ourselves of the insight, impressions, intuitions, and inspirations that our belief in an interested higher power tells us must be possible? Ask for it, was the short answer and the good answer. But to be effectual, asking must be accompanied by awareness, an approach, an attitude that helps us ask the right questions and then hear and see the unexpected answers. What is this attitude? It's serendipity. Serendipity is not a program or a technique or a method or six steps or a sequence of actions. It's not about how to do something or even about what to do. In fact, it doesn't have to do with doing. It has to do with being. And the changes that it advocates are not out in our actions, but in, in our souls. A new attitude deeply understood does more than change what we do. It becomes part of us, and thus it changes who we are. The attitude of serendipity requires shifts in our paradigm of worldview. It suggests a new way of looking at ourselves, our world, and our relationship with the spiritual. Serendipity, besides opening us to greater guidance, can, and here's just a little list of promises to intrigue you, because we really believe this attitude, if fully adopted, can do this list of things. We're going to read them alternately. Number one, it can relax us, reducing frustration and stress. Increase life's excitement. Remove boredom sensitize us to beauty, deepen our feelings, and increase the times when we feel moved. It can orient us to ideas and increase our creativity. 
make us more people-oriented, less thing-oriented. It can enhance our sense of humor. Let us see more of life's little humorous ironies. It can make us more flexible, more spontaneous, actually more fun. And give us more resilience. And finally, it can make our life longer. Because time seems to slow down for those who are highly observant and very aware. And a calm spirit contributes to longevity. Wow. Now that is a pretty pie in the sky list of things. But actually, because we've been living with this for so long, it really is true. It does happen. And they're not every day and every way and so on. You can still be sad and depressed and all that stuff. But when you're looking for things that um, you didn't even know you were looking for, and then it just pops up in front of you, it's pretty amazing. So we're going to go just a little deeper. As we put this all together, we understand that serendipity is not a compromise or a midpoint between structure and spontaneity. It is a frame of mind that lets a person have more of both than he could have of either. So what we're saying is that setting goals with an accompanying determination to stay flexible and to keep looking for something better often reveals shortcuts to the goals that one has set as often as it reveals better goals. So... That's another way to think of it, I think, Linda, the idea that uh, if we, well, let, let's go back for just a minute to, to Walpole's definition, because in a way, the definition he gave is also the formula for how to get what we want. In fact, let's just, let's just talk about that for a minute, and then that'll be our whole, that'll be our whole background to try to sum this up. Walpole, whether he knew it or not, told us how to get serendipity right in the, in his definition of the word. The ability, quote unquote, he said, through sagacity and good fortune to find something good while looking for something else. But there are three requirements. These are the three that he actually mentioned in his definition. Three things you have to have to find serendipity. The first is sagacity. Which definition? Notice, watch, observe, be aware, learn, refuse to wear the blinders of obsession of self-consciousness. Number two, an attitude of good fortune. Remember he said, through good fortune. So, so we set our minds to see changes as opportunities, to see surprises as excitement, to see disappointments with silver linings. And number three, thoughtful goals. Set and list objectives and pursue them until something else better is discovered. So, so he was pretty wise in this definition because, you know, I, I think when I first got enamored with the word, well, I'll tell you a quick story. I was living in Hawaii at the time. It was before Linda and I were married. And I was... At a student, I was going the next year to the Harvard Business School, and I thought life was all about control. I thought it was about setting a goal and getting a plan and making it happen and overcoming any obstacles and getting it done. 
And I had a little experience on the big island of Hawaii, which ironically Linda's going to next week with her sister. <laughs> but I was trying to hitchhike as a young single guy from Kona all the way across the island to Hilo. And it was a long journey, especially in those days, because the roads weren't as good. And I was picked up by a Hawaiian couple that I will never forget. Real bona fide Hawaiians, Rusty and Honey. That was their names. And Honey had on a muumuu and Rusty had on a pair of shorts. And they were driving a beat up old car and they pulled over. And I got in, and to make a long story short, it was a long story because it was all day long. They ended up driving me all the way to Hilo, but we must have stopped 20 times. And they showed me all their favorite things, including where Honey's mother was buried. <laughs> I still remember that. And we got over there, and I and here was the climax. I said, "I was so lucky. You were you came along and stopped, and you happened to be going all the way to Hilo." And I'll never forget Rusty saying, "Oh no, no, in this kind of pigeon English, we 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 were not going to 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 Hilo." I said, "Well, where were you going back in Kona when you picked me up?" And he said, "Well, we were going to uh, the grocery store." <laughs> and I'm and 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 I looked at him like I didn't understand what he was saying, and he said, "We can go to a grocery store tomorrow. Cannot take you to Hilo tomorrow." <laughs> and I was like, "Whoa, this is." And that was sort of a trigger. I wanted to have more of that attitude. I wanted to have the attitude that said, "I thought one thing would happen today, and I had a plan, but I was aware enough." I noticed something better came along. Um, come what may and love it, in essence, a great quote from a man we love. So I do think that there, life is full of serendipity and fun. We have so many examples, but we're out of time right now. But we hope we've given you something to think about. Think about replacing your paradigm of control with an attitude of serendipity. And we promise you, you'll be a happier camper. Good luck and thanks for joining us. See you next time on Hires on the Road.